This is David Tarkington. Thank you for downloading this sermon. For more information about our church, First Baptist Church of Orange Park, and our network, the First Family Network, go to firstfam.org. You can check out my site at davidtarkington.com. Verse 1, chapter 4, Paul is writing to the church in Philippi and says this, Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel tour, uh, together with Clement and the rest of, the fellow, of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is commendable, or whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Well, last week we, we referenced the maturity that God has called us as Christians to have. It has become very clear as we read through Philippians 3 that an immature Christian is a disobedient Christian. That once a person says yes to Jesus Christ and receives the calling that God has upon them and surrenders to them and becomes a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, there is a and a godly expectation to grow up. That moment of justification that is then ended with glorification, that moment we step into heaven, there is this journey called life of a Christian, of sanctification, and that is the maturing as Christians through the process. It's not always fun. Uh, there are growing pains in that process and that journey. Uh, you understand what growing pains are, for, for there is a generation that thinks of a, of a sitcom, but growing pains... When, I remember when I was like 13, and I would lay down in the floor and watch TV in our house, and, and I would just hurt. My, the joints would hurt. My, my knee would hurt. My chest would It still does, but it's not because of growing pains. It's now arthritis, I think. But, but I would wake up and say, Mom, I'm just, everything hurts. I don't know what's going on. And there's something about, you know, uh, hitting, uh, going into adolescence and all of a sudden your body, uh, especially as a guy, you know, at the beginning of the school year, uh, the pants fit and by November they're four inches too short. And it wasn't because they were washed in hot water and dried. It was because, you know, you, I grew and, and you grow fast, your body's trying to catch up and uh, these growing pains occur. And growing pains occur in the life of a Christian as well. And, and that often, let me just go ahead, this was the end of the sermon last time, it's fresh on my mind, I'll make it the beginning of it this time. If you're a Christian and you're active in a local church, let me just promise you, let me guarantee you, let me make sure you get this, you can write it down, your feelings will be hurt. Someone's going to hurt your feelings. It may be someone paid to do so, like a pastor. It could be a deacon. It could be your Sunday school teacher. It could be somebody else in the church that has just you know, a lay person just like you. But your feelings will get hurt. And that's part of the growing pains. It really is a maturation process of how you get through it. Because what happened in the first century church, you have the church at Philippi, you have the church at Ephesus, you have the church at uh, Corinth, you have these churches that are as big as cities. You didn't have Hibernia Church in Philippi. You didn't have First Baptist Middleburg Philippi. You didn't have Christ Church Philippi. 
You didn't have celebration. You didn't have orange party. You had the church at Philippi. So in the first century church, when somebody's feelings got hurt, they couldn't just go join the church down the street. Because to stay immature in your Christianity is when your feelings get hurt and, nobody, and everybody's not behaving the way they're supposed to behave according to you, it's easier to just pack up and go somewhere else and start over, but rest assured, eventually they're going to hurt your feelings too. And so if you're, if you're good at it, I mean, you can work, this is a game, I've seen it played in, 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 well, Clay County for years, but you can actually join every church in this county every three to six months if you want to and just avoid any hurt feelings. But eventually you're going to be at no church. And that's called immature Christianity. Now sometimes God calls us to other places. That's, that's a real deal. But I'm just saying when, when, when the issues of real life, growing in a church and serving together happen, somehow you have to figure out how to get through it rather than just abandon the fellowship because somebody hurt my feelings or didn't do what I was expecting them to do. I promise you, if you stay here at First Baptist Orange Park long enough, like an hour or two, your feelings will be hurt. Your feelings will be hurt, and we will not do what you want. At least I can make that promise and fulfill it. Because we are a broken people, ministering with broken people to serve together in a broken world for a glory of a God who is unbroken. And that's why we're here. Paul gives this command to this church that he loves dearly. And here's another thing about the love of God upon his church. God loves us dearly and deeply, and I don't think our brains are big enough to fathom that. I think we struggle with the full comprehension of God's great love for us. I think part of it's because many of us don't like ourselves that much. How could God love us? But I also think every time we try to figure out how to understand the love of God for his church and his children is we look for illustrations that make it work. And so we say, well, you know, God's like our father. He is our heavenly father. So he loves us like a parent loves their child. And that works until we recognize the reality. And we all know this sadly to be true that there are actual biological parents who do not love their biological children. They just don't. And so we struggle with that. And then there are good godly Christian parents who are raising children in their household, who uh, have their name and they're responsible for it, and they love them unconditionally. If you ask mom and dad, their love for their children is unconditional. They love them the same whether they behave or not. The challenge is this. Despite how much we love our kids unconditionally, often they receive our love as conditional. We're saying, but I love them unconditionally. But they say, yeah, but mama loves me more when I clean my room. They love me more when I behave. And that's not what we intend them to think. But that's certainly what it feels like. So there is a brokenness even in our ability to comprehend the depth of God's love for us, realizing that no, God does not excuse our sin. God does not affirm our wrongness. God is not pleased when we walk away from him. But God's love for us is not contingent on your behavior. God's love for us is as deep and wide as it ever will be. God will never love you more than he does today. And he does not love you more today than he did yesterday. His love is that overwhelming, my little pea brain can't comprehend it. And that's amazing. Paul writes of God's love for his children and his church in this letter. And the church at Philippi was like every other church on the planet. It had its issues. But it's still God's beautiful bride. And it exists for him. Just like this church exists for him. And, and there is a beauty in this relationship of God and his church. 
So when we read God's words through his apostle Paul to the church from 2,000 years ago in a town called Philippi, it's more than just a history lesson. It is a living word to the church in Orange Park and all around the world today. And today I want to talk about calling. Calling is one of those interesting words that I think is, uh, it's, it's used often in the evangelical church. It's often misused in the evangelical church. Now, I understand biblically there is a calling that is upon all believers. We are all called to do what God has led us to do. It's, it's, it's expressed in the Scriptures. Then there are those that are called or gifted, maybe a better term, and called out for specific tasks and specific roles. Pastoral ministry or, or the service and deacons, uh, deacon ministry or others. Those are not what it's limited to. Those are just some examples. But we have so often, I think, opinion now, overused or misused the term of calling that it becomes this excuse to do or not do certain things. Well, I'm not called to that. Well, that's my calling. We're in the process of, of, uh, of, of ordaining a few men to serve as deacons in this church. We went through our, our process a few weeks back, uh, months back, of asking for nominations for men to serve as deacons. Now, this is, this is uh, one of those, this, this is a good Thanksgiving week so, so, because attendance is down, so I'll go ahead and go here. Here's the issue with calling that, that strikes me in this church and in just about every, every Baptist church I've ever been a part of, and I'll just use the deacons as my example. It could be pastors. We've called people, I'm called to be in pastoral ministry, and they're not even serving anywhere anymore. So I'm like, well, is it a call or is it just I'm testing the waters? Maybe. I think some people are, and I think some people are, are what, what happens is, is I'm called to ministry, and I serve in a place, and God reveals, well, that's not the place. The calling is still very much in effect. It doesn't disappear, and sometimes it's just, I'm trying to, to discern where God has me at this season for his service, but let's talk about the deacon calling. We have a process in our church uh, where deacons are called out and called by God, affirmed by his church, and then asked to serve for three years and then take a year off. Now this is odd because most pastors would never go here. Most pastors I know would never even dare do this, and this may be really dumb on my part, but I'm going to say it anyway. I have a hard time finding the biblical mandate for the year off. I have a hard time seeing an expiration date when your calling is now over until you're either dead or you've disqualified yourself due to moral reasons. That's just really hard for me. Now, I also understand polity in Baptist churches works this way. You know why most Baptist churches, and I'm just only talking about Baptists because I don't know what the Methodists do. But you know why most Baptists have this three years on and one year off thing? There's usually two reasons. One, you can't get guys to commit for a lifetime. Two, you've got to figure out a way to get guys off of that you don't want back again. It's only funny unless it's you or your husband but you know it's true. Because most Baptist churches are so afraid of doing anything that even resembles biblical church discipline that if an issue comes up in the, in the ordained capacity of the called out ones, most would rather say, well, let's just let him, let, he's only got another year, let him rotate off, we just won't put him back. So when the church avoids biblical discipline when it must be happening, it creates a, a great divide between being an obedient church of God and just a church of people that gather and call themselves the church. 
Folks, I, 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 I'm not changing bylaws or anything today. I'm just saying there's absolutely no biblical mandate for three years on and one year off. And I know men who have served actively as deacons, and when they take their year off, they're still very actively serving as deacons. And I appreciate the reality of knowing that all you've done is taken a year off of 12 meetings, and I say bless you for that. Because that's sometimes the one reason men won't serve. If God has called you, you don't have the right to say, no, I don't do it anymore. Unless you have morally disqualified yourself. And then the church has the right to say, no, you don't do that anymore. The calling is lifetime. There's no expiration date on your ordination certificate. There's no expiration date on your calling as a Christian. The only thing similar similar to an expiration date would be your funeral. And God calls you home. When we are called as Christians, and let's not even go the deacon pastor route, Christians called to serve. We're all called. And we all have a job to do. Let me tell you what's happening in this church. There's three, three things about calling I've noticed in this. this. It got real quiet, so I'm going to move on. The first thing Paul does is he calls out some people. Now, Paul doesn't do this often, but when he does it, it's pretty strong. Paul often doesn't call out people by name, but he does here. If you looked at this verse in verse uh, 3 or 2, Paul writes this letter, says, hey, everything's good. I love you guys. I'm sitting here in prison. Wish I was there. Verse 2, and I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. It sounds very non-threatening. But if you're Euodia or Syntyche, this is not fun. It's first not fun because your parents decided to name you Euodia or Syntyche. <laughs> and secondly, this letter was delivered to the church, written by the Apostle Paul, to, uh, to someone who wrote it down for him while he's chained up to a guard in a Roman prison. I'll just say Paul's not having a great day. But he writes this letter of his great love for God's church, and he sends this letter to them, and he says, hey, we've talked about joy, we've talked about this, we've talked about growing up, and now I just want to address this really quickly, just a couple of sentences. Church, I entreat you, I beg of you, I command you to deal with Euodia and Syntyche until they agree in the Lord. What in the world is going on with these women? Here's what we're, knowing, what, what we're seeing here. We're seeing two ladies in the church, and by the way, it's only ladies because Euodia and Syntyche happen to be that. It could be men. It could be men and women. If Euodia and Syntyche, here's the reality. Here's who they are. They are both church members, as affirmed by Paul's word, and they both served on mission trip together, as what Paul said regarding Clement, and they're both going to heaven. Now, here's the thing. They won't sit next to each other at church, but they're going to spend eternity with each other in heaven. That's kind of funny, and it's kind of, you better get your act together while here on earth because you're going to spend a long time sitting next to each other in heaven. Here's something that makes it even more relevant to every church in America today. These two church members have become stumbling blocks for other people in the church. They've become stumbling blocks. Why? Because on their journey of spiritual maturity, they've pulled off the highway and they're sitting still at a rest stop and they're just mad at each other. And it isn't like it's happening in a vacuum. 
Angry church members who are part of the same church family who are, met, are angry at each other, won't talk to each other, won't sit in the same service with each other, won't sit in the same section of the sanctuary with each other, won't go to Sunday school with each other. When that happens, factions develop and the enemy is winning a battle. We don't know what happened. We don't have a clue what happened with these women. And that's likely because if, God, if Paul had given us, if God had given us through Paul the exact particulars about what happened, we would disqualify that as a specific story for specific people at a specific place. It's kind of like when Paul says, I have a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what the thorn is, but everybody who has an issue can go, I can relate. So every church can read this and go, we can relate. And here's the, let's just be very honest. Everyone in the room, including the ones on stage, okay, me, we all have a little Euodia and Syntyche in us. It takes very little effort to do this. Very little. We don't know what happened, but here's, I don't know, maybe they were fighting about something ridiculous. Maybe, maybe one of them sat in the other one's seat during the service. You know, something serious like that. Maybe they go to the same Sunday school class, but they were fighting over who got to lead it. Maybe they served on a committee together, but had differing opinions on a vote. Maybe it was something super serious, like one of them ignored the other one in a crowd. Or maybe they wore the same color dress to church that day. That's shocking, but I, I know every passion play I've ever seen, all the women are dressed alike anyways. I don't know how this works. They're all wearing robes. We don't know what it is that caused the issue, but here's what we do know. It didn't matter for eternity. Whatever it was that caused them to sit here and here, we don't know. I'm just, I imagine, my mind goes crazy with this. I'm thinking, here's these two women fighting, and it's not in a vacuum. So that means everybody in the church or everybody in the Sunday school class or everybody in that group, they've got to pick a side because Euodia, Euodia is going to be ticked off at this person if they're hanging out with Syntyche and vice versa. Euodia's husband and Syntyche's husband used to golf together and eat biscuits on some Thursday morning. But they're not allowed to golf together anymore because their wives don't like each other anymore. Their kids can't hang out together. They're not going on the same trip together because now they're mad at each other. And it may be they're at such a point they don't even know why they're mad at each other anymore. Because human nature is just like that. But that's what's happening there. And here's what we know. Regardless, and by the way, one of the two ladies is going to win this fight. The faction is going to be, it's right down the middle. Either there's going to be the Euodia Baptist Church and the Syntyche Baptist Church. I don't know how it's going to work out. But one of them's going to win. And for one of them to win, the other one has to lose. And if one wins and ends up with more friends than the other one, let me just tell you what's going to happen from a history of 50 years being in church. If one wins and the other loses, if Euodia wins and Syntyche loses, then it will not be long before Syntyche is no longer going to that church. And it will not be long before Syntyche likely is going to no church. And then it'll be like a year later at some fellowship where somebody in the class says, whatever happened to Syntyche? I don't know. I don't see her around anymore. It's tragic because in the first century church, you abandon much to join it. it is, see, here's the opposite. In the, in the American church from the 50s to today, you join, many people would join a church to gain votes if they're running for office, or they would, yeah, I said it. Or they would join the church to get customers for their business. Or they would join the church because it looks good in, in, in the community. You know, Everybody's building resumes. Not everybody, but there are certain ones. But in the first century church, you join the church to lose votes. You join the church to lose influence. You join the church so your family won't invite you to Thanksgiving anymore because you join that cult church thing going on. 
To be a part of the first century church was a great sacrifice because it was not considered, and it's not so much today, we're getting right back to that in case you haven't noticed, but it it was never considered at this point a status join. It didn't help them in the community, it hurt them. So if in this small group of people in a town like Philippi where everybody knows who everybody is and everybody knows who doesn't go to synagogue or to the pagan rituals anymore and has left all that in their family to go join this new Christian church thing going on, when everybody knows, they also know from the outside looking in when that church is about to implode. And that's not an old news story. We still know that about sister churches around our city. What mattered, though, was the kingdom of God. What didn't matter was Euodia and Syntyche's story, and it didn't matter that either of them had their feelings hurt. It's time for them to grow up and get over it. But you know reconciliation rarely happens when two people decide to reconcile? Did you ever notice that? That's why Paul says to this yoke fella, I want you to be the third party. Bring them together. I don't know what it means. Lock them in a room till they like each other. Do something. But they need to agree in the Lord. It's a tale as old as church. If the church is distracted, the mission won't be complete. If the church is focused on what doesn't matter, what does matter is ignored. Years ago, Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev, I bet you've never heard me use a Khrushchev illustration before, he told of a time in the Soviet Union uh, where there was a lot of uh, stealing going on at factories. And so to kind of curb that, The Communist Party, under his leadership, increased the number of guards at all the factories. And the story is told of a guard that was at this one factory somewhere in Russia or in Soviet Union, uh, actually near Leningrad at the time, which is, I think, St. Petersburg now, but anyway. Peter Petrovich was working at the factory. And Peter Petrovich is there, and the guard knows him. He's known him his whole life. And he sees Peter leaving. He's, he's the new guard. He's going, Peter, where are you going? He goes, I'm going home from work. Peter had a wheelbarrow. And in his wheelbarrow, he had something piled up, covered up in a blanket or in a, in a cloth. And the guard says, Peter, what's in the wheelbarrow? And Peter's like, nothing. <laughs> Peter, what's in the wheelbarrow? It's just sawdust and pieces of junk wood. Peter dumped the wheelbarrow. Peter does. He dumps the wheelbarrow Everything falls out, guess what it is? Sawdust and pieces of junk wood. And the guard's going, well, okay. Load it back up and get out of here. See you later. Next day, same thing happens. Wheelbarrow. The, guy, the guard's just waving him by. Like four or five days later, the guard's going, something's going on. I'm not getting this. And so finally, at his level of frustration, he pulls Peter over with his wheelbarrow at the last day of the week, and he says, Peter, listen, I know something's going on. Here's my promise to you. I'm not going to turn you in. It's got to stop. I'm not going to turn you in. I just got to know, what are you stealing? Peter says, you're not going to turn me in? I'm not going to turn you in. You promise? I promise. Swear to the God we're not allowed to believe in? Yes, I do. It's communist Russia. Anyway, he says, what are you stealing? Peter says, wheelbarrows. (laughs) I'm stealing wheelbarrows. I got five of them now. And you laugh at that and you go, what? And it's like when you're focusing on what doesn't matter, you miss which is obviously more important. So Paul calls out these later ladies. They've been called out in the church. And yeah, it's embarrassing. And yeah, it seems, oh my goodness, I can't believe he called their name. But at some point, sometimes in the church, names need to be called. 
Sin needs to be addressed. Issues need to be raised. Because here's what we know to be true. If this sin between Euodia and Syntyche is just left to fester, it will never drift towards health. And it will never accidentally become healing. And what will end up is a split church and a divided body. And the enemy will go, I got another one. Letting things slide, just hoping they will get better, often will never happen. And yet this is, is not punishment, this is discipline, and that is totally different. The calling out is not just to these women. Listen to this. This is what's even more uh, important here. It's not just Euodia and Syntyche. Their names are in the Bible forever. We get to read about them. But Paul is not calling out those two ladies specifically or only. He's calling out the church. He's saying, church, why have you let this happen? Deal with it. Fix it. Yeah, but they'll rotate off eventually. Fix it now. Yeah, but they give a lot. Fix it now. Yeah, but it's just too messy. Fix it now. Because if you don't, it's going to divide your church forever. And you may not recover. I don't know what, how bad the situation was, but I'll say it's this bad. It's so bad that even in pre-Facebook days and pre-text messaging days, Paul in Rome in prison heard about it. Wow. Even, we gossiped well in the first century, but it got there. Everybody's talking about it. Now, why do these things happen in churches? Why have they happened since the beginning of church life? Because immaturity and the inability to see the bigger picture often reigns. Second thing uh, Paul does and God calls us to is not just to be called out. That's only two verses. That's not even the primary part. The second thing is even better, being called up, being called up. Paul addresses the issue and then expects the church to respond. Why does he expect the church to respond? Here's why. Because it's a good church and they've done well and it's time to respond. He has all the faith they will do it. And then he says this to them. He says, I want you to rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. It's like, if in case you didn't read it the first time, let me repeat it. Let your reasonableness, reasonableness, I can't even say it, reasonableness be known to everyone. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This good church is encouraged to rejoice. Now, let me just say, this fighting woman issue is going to be fixed. Paul's not even concerned about that. It's going to happen, no doubt. They've proven themselves. But at this juncture, the command of God through Paul is clear. You, church, must rejoice. And here's the challenge. Here's the problem. We all want joy. Joy is a good thing. It's almost Christmas. Joy to the world and peace and joy and all that joy stuff. We want it. We desire it. But the fact of the matter is, because we're humans, and I'm talking about Christians in here, sometimes that joy which we know is ours for the taking as Christians is, is everywhere but where we look. We can't find it. We don't feel joyful. We don't feel pleased. We don't feel happy. It's a really bad day and tomorrow looks worse. And that's kind of what many people are living in right now. But I want joy, and I think you likely want joy. And as we've read through this entire book, it becomes very clear that joy doesn't just automatically happen. Joy is chosen by the child of God. It must be sought. Where is it then? If it's, if it's something we're supposed to have, where is it? Has it been misplaced? You ever misplace anything? You ever look for your keys and realize they're in your hand? 
You ever look for your glasses and they're on top of your head? You ever been like that? I found a remote control in the refrigerator once. I don't know why. It happens. You misplace things. Sometimes that joy is stolen. Have you ever had anything stolen from you? That's terrible. When I was in seminary, first go around back in the 90s, I came out of class. My truck has been stolen. At a seminary. At a seminary, someone stole my truck. We've confirmed it was likely a music student, but... Oh, sorry. probably a youth pastor. Anyway, I go out of class that day, and I go to where I'm parked, and, and, I, and I'm working a job, so I'm getting ready to go to work. It was a bad week. My, my wife's grandfather had passed away. We're heading up to Arkansas for a funeral. I'm like, oh my goodness. So when, I don't know, but when things happen, they all tend to happen at once, right, where it makes it really fun. So I'm at a seminary learning how to be a good Christian preacher guy, and joy is supposed to be automatic. I walk out, and I'm looking for my truck, and, 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 and I'm having these moments because on these days I park over here, on those days I park over there. And this was, anybody ever lose your car in the parking lot? Anybody? Okay. <laughs> I didn't mean, that's, well, we just all went charismatic. Every hand went up. Um, so, so this was before we had the button on the, the thing to make it beep. Does anybody else use that button just to find your car? Okay, good. I'm not the only one. My car automatically starts if I hit the right one. So I usually wait till somebody's right behind it and then I start it. I mean, they, it's scary. And, then I, and if I hit the other button, the reverse lights come on. I'm not even in it. It's hilarious. Uh, it's, what would, it's, it's what Jesus would do if he had that. But I'm looking for my truck, and I realize, well, it's not here. I must have parked it on the other side. So I go walking to the other side, and now I'm like, no, it's not here. I go back to where it was parked, and I re- look down in the spot, and there's glass all over the parking lot. I'm like, oh, my goodness. Really? God, seriously, today? Not like any other day would have been better, but today. So I call the police, Fort Worth police, and they say, do you want us to come out? And I'm like, well, yeah. <laughs> what do you mean do I want you to? Yes, I want you to come here. Guy pulls in. I said, I said why'd you ask? Do I want you to come out? He says, this happens all the time. I just didn't know if you just wanted to report filed. I said, now I feel even better going back the next day. But, you know, they find my truck. Somebody much shorter than me had stolen it. The seat was all the way up. I don't even know how to do it. I got it a week later. I had to pay to get it back, and I had to drive it with a screwdriver for a month. But I got it back. Suffice to say, when something you own is stolen, there is a, an anger, maybe uh, for me, there was an anger that built up immediately, and, and I'm like, I've been violated. You stole something that's mine. You took something that's mine. I want to get back at you. I don't even know who you are. Never did know. Um was told by the police it was probably an initiation or some gang initiation. They just stole it from here and drove it there, and they found it. I mean, it's just it's crazy stuff. So when your stuff is stolen, it ticks you off, and it hurts, and it makes you afraid or angry and all that. But what about when your joy is stolen? I mean, that's a big deal, and it happens. So I, 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 what robs our joy? What steals joy from the Christian life? Here's a not complete list because the list just grows. But here are some things like anxiety and worry. You know, I I get it. We go, oh, you just don't understand. I I have anxiety. I'm just worried all the time. I get that, but I also read in chapter 4 where God says through Paul right here uh, in verse 6 to not be anxious. So you're not supposed to be. I can't help it. I know that's why why you have God. Um, 
He does all those things you can't help because you can't help it. But sometimes anxiety and worry will steal that joy. Have you ever been so worried about something that you actually had a full conversation with how something's going to turn out before you ever had the conversation with the real person? And then by the time you get them, you're already mad at them? Or you're so worried about a circumstance. We worry about things we have no control over. We look back, if, we, if things really happen that we really worried about, oh my goodness. But we just worry. Sometimes there's some legit things. This is legit. Here's one, loss. A loss of a loved one can steal your joy. It's a sad, grievous moment. Doubt. Doubt and fear are often married. I don't know if you knew that, but a doubt can, can overwhelm us and rob us of our joy. I don't know how tomorrow's going to be. I, don't, I doubt I can do it. I doubt this is going to work out. I'm worried. It all interrelates. Physical illness can steal our joy. It really happens. I mean, if you're physically ill, it's really hard to be joyful. If you have something you're dealing with and a medication you continually take and there are side effects, I mean, that's just reality there. It can rob us of this. The feeling of abandonment can rob us of joy. The, a work, your job can rob you of joy. I mean, maybe you're not a thank God it's Monday kind of person. Sometimes people just, their job just overwhelms them. Marital difficulties can rob them of joy. Children and family. Children are a blessing and a joy, but they are also the ones that can steal it. I don't know if you knew that. Because they're human just like you. Stress, overwhelming stress can rob us. And then this great line, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Life is full of joy robbers. They are everywhere and we all face them and no one is immune. Everybody in the room has things in their life that can steal their joy. And so it's great to know that we're all kind of in the muck together, but what do we do about it? What do you do? Paul then calls us up. He says, rejoice. You're like, yeah, that's really easy for you to say, Paul. I come back and say, if Paul was a bleached white teeth, perfectly coiffed hair, $3,000 suit, million-dollar mansion, nice private helicopter, and a big pseudo-church that he talks to every week about feel-good stuff, then I would say, easy for you to say Paul. But Paul is not one of those modern-day hucksters. Paul is an apostle and a man of God sitting in a prison that has experienced shipwreck, snakebite, Rocks being thrown at him, and now he's chained up to a guard. And let me just say, when Paul woke up that morning, he didn't go, man, this is a great day. He probably woke up and said, I'm still chained to this guy, and I'm eating bad food once more. And my church in Philippi is in trouble. But Paul says, rejoice when your circumstances leave you wondering, where's God in all this? Because apparently, if Paul can do it, we can do it. This is Paul not having a good day, but having joy. Joy is not some giddiness, just a simple, I'm feeling happy about everything going on in my life right now. Joy is a contentedness in the difficulties of life. How can you rejoice in this? Well, you can rejoice because God is not constrained by your current circumstances. God is not surprised by what's happening in your marriage. God is not shocked by what your kids are doing. God knew about your health issues before you did or your doctor did. God knows what's happening in your house and what's not happening in your finances. He knows. I'm not saying God likes it all. I'm not saying God caused it all. But I'm saying God knows it all and God cares about it all. And God is not removed from his role of King of Kings and Lord of Lords just because of our circumstances. For the families that are living in tents right now in the panhandle of Florida, 
praying it doesn't rain too much because the tent may, may, may have a leak. They would move into their house, but the insurance adjuster has said, we're not rebuilding that. Just pick up what you can out of the rubble, and we'll see what happens in a month or two. For that family, can they rejoice? According to this, yes. What about the families in California who are looking at a bulletin board now for the names of loved ones, hoping they've been found, but there's still over 1,000 not found and over 70 that have been confirmed dead in these crazy wildfires. In the midst of tragedies like this, is it even possible to rejoice? According to the passage that we've just read from a guy in prison that was almost killed, it is possible, and it isn't simple. And it isn't ignoring circumstances. All of us could list ad infinitum tragedy th- tragic things happening in the world and things happening in lives of friends that we know and even in our own lives. And I would say in the church of Philippi, with all that they were struggling with being persecuted by the community, there was likely some within their church losing sleep because Euodia and Syntyche were no longer friends. And what they saw as their home church and their place of peace and their place of refuge was now the place on Saturday they didn't want to get up on Sunday to go visit because of the division that was occurring within the fellowship. You ever been in that church? And then God says, through Paul, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If you rejoice even in these circumstances, you can be promised that the, the peace of God, which is um, unbelievable, it is unexplainable. Some of you here have experienced this. You've gone through difficulties, through tragedies. Through, you're going through difficulties even now. But when asked, you say, you know, there's just something about it. There's just, I, it's not easy. Tomorrow doesn't look any better than today. But there is this peace that is enveloping me, and I really can't explain it. And you're like, well, can you just tell us what it's like? And you're like, well, no, because Scripture actually says it surpasses my understanding. So I do not have the capacity to explain this peace, but I do have this for you. I'm experiencing this. And I don't know why. I don't know how God loves me so much, but he loves me so much that even when my circumstances are everything but what I would desire, God's great love overwhelms me and gives me a peace to know that I'm not going through whatever I'm going through alone. The peace that is beyond our comprehension will guard my heart. Be called up and rejoice. And lastly, and then very quickly, be called as Christians. Just you're called, you're Christians. You know what you're going to get through this life without God. Here's what, verse 8, we'll close it with this. Paul says, here's the antidote. Finally, brothers, whatever is true. Well, what is true? God is truth. Okay. Whatever is honorable. Well, I would say God's honorable. Whatever is just. God is a just God. Whatever is pure, he is the most pure. Whatever is lovely, he is the most lovely and beautiful. Whatever is commendable, well, that would be God. If there is any excellence, well, God's excellent. If there is anything worthy of praise, that's only God worthy of praise. Think on these things. Think on these things. If your mind is full of everything but God, the joy of the Lord is not your strength. So when you're going through the midst of these trials, in the midst of these difficulties, in the midst of these challenges, it's not a simple, just go read your Bible verse today and everything's going to be okay. But it is this, think on the things of God, think on God, focus on God, because if you're not focusing on God, you're looking at the stuff in the wheelbarrow and missing the wheelbarrow. God has something great for you, folks. He has something great for us as a church. For any Euodia and Syntyche story going on in this church, it needs to get over with if it is even happening now. 
And if it's not happening now, it will. Why? Because we're human. We need to mature together, grow together, get through the growing pains, and realize God has much for us. If you don't know the Jesus we speak of, I want to offer you a free invitation to life so that you may know that you don't go through this alone. And I'm going to pray for you right now as we close.